The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are only those of the participants and not necessarily those of Village Presbyterian Church or the PCUSA. Welcome to Millennial Ministries, the podcast for young adults for Village Presbyterian Church. With us this week is Trenton Halley. Sorry. With us. (laughs) We botched the opening. Way to go, guys. With us this week is Trenton. Hello. Halley. Hi. And Roger. Hi. (laughs) This is going great. I think think I'm just going to keep this all in here. I think it's fine. He's the perfect, you know. So we are uh, this fall engaging in a series of conversation about the confessions, um, not our innermost, deepest secrets. That might be weird, uh, but our ancient and historical writings, where our Christian ancestors in faith have been um, uh, in moments of chaos and moments of turmoil, choosing to write down what they believe. Um, not because, what's the phrase we keep using, not because they just wanted to, but because they felt like they must. Mm. Uh, so Roger, uh, Reverend Dr. Roger Nishioka is with us this week. Uh, and Roger, what can you tell us about the confessions? What is your relationship with our book of confessions? Mm. Gosh, Hallie. So as a uh, pastor in the Presbyterian Church, we have to study the confessions. Uh, I was a professor at Columbia Seminary and taught uh, practical theology for a number of years. And so we help our students focus on the confessions and look at them uh, we have to answer ordination questions about the confessions and talk about how we are able to teach them, preach them, use them in pastoral care. Uh, I think they're foundational. Certainly the foundation for us is scripture, but then we also dare to believe that there are times when by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit calls women and men together to make some statements that inform the church and inform the world about who we are. And I'm I'm glad that we are a confessional church. There are some traditions around us that don't do confessions. Uh, I'm glad that we are. Mm, well said. So if you had to um, choose a confession you like the most or a piece of confession that you like the most, what would that be? Mm. So the first one that comes to mind, uh, something that a number of us have been reading even more in these days, um, is the Declaration from Barman. Uh, this is in Europe in World War II. And it comes from the German churches at a time when uh, the Third Reich was rising. Adolf Hitler had been made chancellor, and he swiftly began to dismantle all kinds of rights like freedom of speech and freedom to gather and the freedom of the press. Uh, he would dispose of opponents, political opponents, uh, banned other parties besides uh, the Third Reich. And sadly, uh, much of the German churches went along with this. Uh, some German churches were preaching that Hitler is sent to us by God uh, some of you historians, you know this much more than I do, but German economy was in shambles after mm-hmm. First World War. I think one of the mistakes that uh, persons made, governments made, was to try punish the German people for the First World War, so they were in destitute situations. When people are desperate, it always gives rise to other voices, sometimes mm-hmm. the worst possible voices in human beings. And this came through Adolf Hitler. And he talked about how Germany should rise again, how the German people, by God's ordained power, 
are destined to rule the world and in a midst of people who were horribly, horribly ashamed and living in terrible conditions, his message caught. Mm. Sadly, the church also thought that the message was accurate and worthy of being adopted. So by and large, the German churches supported the Third Reich to the point of preachers and teachers and professors saying that this also is God's will. And there's a group of small group of women and men, Lutherans and Reformed and others who said, we do not believe this is uh, consistent with the gospel. And they wrote a statement in the town of Barman called the Theological Declaration of Barman that simply said, God alone is the head of the church and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The Holy Spirit is at work in the world and we see nothing in Nazism that is able to be supported by the gospel. And at the time, of course, it was a incredibly dangerous stand to make. And persons did this in secret. Uh, persons lost their jobs. Some persons lost their lives. These are people like uh, Martin Niemöller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others. They became what's called the confessing church, which is using the confession language to say that we are confessing that what is happening in our country and going to spread to the rest of the world, this militarism is not what Jesus wants for God's people. And uh, they had great courage to put this word out. So you say this is a um, this is a confession you are paying attention to with others in the, in this moment. Why would that be? I'm baiting you. You are. I'm just fully baiting you. You are. <laughs> there goes the massive steak on the table. <laughs> Thank you, Trenton. <laughs> I think one of the questions that the Church of Jesus Christ always has to ask is, are we complicit with the society in such a way that we have given up ourselves, given up the identity of the Church, the call of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and in those moments when we are, I think we have to rely upon courageous women and men who are willing to stand up and say, this is not what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. There are a number of persons who are asking, are we in the United States in those similar days when a majority of self-proclaiming evangelical Christians say they support the policies of the current administration uh, they believe that God has ordained the current administration, the president, the vice president. Are we at a time now when persons have to speak up and say, this is not what we believe Jesus Christ is calling us to do and to be? I think there's some lessons learned from the courage of the people who wrote the Declaration of Barman. And we, we brought this up a little last week when we were talking about Westminster which I've noted is my least favorite confession. There's too many words in that. <laughs> but the editing that happened in the Westminster Confession as it came to the New World, as it came to America, the language that had to be changed because we're saying that civil authority, that political authority and, and the church are different. The separation of church and state is a new thing in the New World and has to be named and claimed and, and is important to our identity as Americans and as Christians in this country. So I think Barman is is helpful in that, that saying, and when these two worlds interfere, when they collide with each other, 
it's Christ that we have to pledge allegiance to. Mm-hmm. Well, in so many evangelical churches, um, and I would say argue Baptist churches, Southern Baptist particularly, that flavor, have given into this gospel of nationalism that to be Christian in this day, uh, evangelical American Christian in this day and age, you can't see it, but I'm putting air quotes, is to be nationalistic, is to embrace the gospel of American primacy in the world. And I think that Barman warns against that, the idea that the church is not the func- should not do the function of the state, and the state should not do the function of the church. And I'm not talking in terms of political values here, in terms of welfare state and that kind of thing, but there's this weird shift in American Christianity outside the mainliners to this nationalistic thing. And um, I saw it, and I think it's, it's kind of concerning, uh, Robert Jeffrey's church. He's the pastor of First Baptist in Dallas. And they had a July 4th patriotic celebration with Donald Trump's kids. And it's this weird marriage of church and government that's going on. And it flies in the face of Barman and how interesting that only, what, 70 years later, we've already forgotten what mm. happens when you mix the two. Mm, that's well said. So some call that American civil religion, mm-hmm. where it's the complete wedding of yeah, the religious and the political. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I think, always, it's interesting, throughout Europe, I spent some time in Hungary and the Czech Republic, um, and throughout Europe, whenever the church has given itself away to the state, the gospel always suffers. Mm-hmm. And... And the church loses credibility. One of the reasons why the Czech Republic is one of the most secular countries in Europe is that, by and large, for it to be preserved, the Czech churches, when the Soviets came in, said that they would support the Soviets and the Soviet leadership just to survive. I think whenever the church puts her own survival ahead of what the gospel calls us to do, then we've given ourselves away. And that's... That's the less than faithful place for us to be. So um, I also want to ask you, Roger, you have a unique relationship with our newest confession, um, with the Confession of Belhar, uh, in that you were part of the committee um, with our General Assembly that was looking at adding this confession to our Book of Confessions. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Mm, Thank you, Hallie. So um, I was privileged and honored uh, when the General Assembly, which is the national offices of the church, uh, the largest gathering, the highest gathering of women and men who were elected as commissioners from all across the church, when they consider the possibility of a new confession, which is a big deal, they ask the moderator of the church to appoint a special committee to guide the General Assembly, the whole church's conversation. So I was privileged to be on that committee, and it was a collection of women and men, theologians from around the United States. Um, the Belhar Confession is a confession that was written in the midst of apartheid in South Africa. And it was written by what was called at the time the Dutch Reform Mission Church. The Dutch Reform Church itself was the church that really supported apartheid, much like the German churches supported the Third Reich in World War II. The Dutch Reform Church, which is the white church in South Africa, they actually wrote a whole series of theological statements and biblical statements supporting why the separation of the races was ordained by God. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this was a challenge, especially for the Christians in South Africa who were of mixed race, who were Asian, who were black. 
And so these churches got together and began to raise serious questions, and they wrote a statement in the town of Belhar, and they said they believe apartheid stands directly in contradiction to the gospel, that nothing that they understand about the gospel ever calls for the separation of races the way that apartheid has affected South Africa. Well, so that statement is very powerful, um, but it's also very local. It talks about South Africa. It addresses the situation in South Africa. So when Presbyterians in the U.S. began to consider it, a lot of the criticism was, but this isn't about us. This mm -hmm. is about some other country. Why should we even adopt this and include this in our Book of Confessions? And that actually was the major issue of concern. People did not disagree with what the churches in South Africa said. They weren't sure that we had anything to say about it or to include it. And in our U.S. Book of Confessions seemed to some to be less than faithful. Mm. So what was the result of that? Obviously, we know that it became a confession. So what was the argument in favor of adopting it? That's a great question, Matt. So actually, this is where Barman helped because Barman was already in the Confessions, and people said, well, we also weren't in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, but we adopted that because it calls into question what it means to be citizens of a nation. And in some very similar ways, Belhar also calls into question what does it mean to be citizens of a nation, in this case, South Africa. And it also raises serious issues about race and racism. And... Americans know we are far from ever solving the questions and the deep wounds about race and racism in this country. And so those arguments themselves, the fact that Barman was already in the Book of Confessions and the fact that we need to hear from our South African sisters and brothers who suffered through apartheid, mm -hmm. what it means to be people of racial reconciliation, those two arguments won the day. The Belhar failed the first time it came to the General Assembly and to the Presbyteries, but the second time it came, it did pass. So there's a great debate going on right now, academically, religiously, about what, it, what unity looks like in the church mm. and what it means to be unified. And, you know, and our brothers and sisters in the Methodist Church, my former home, Debating over, do we do they split? Do they stay? What is what does it mean to maintain unity? So Belhar and Brahman also both speak to this idea that there's unity in Christ outside of state government. Speaking state as nation governments, I should say. What do you think about this idea of unity? Do you think it's better to always stay together, or do you think splitting is sometimes necessary? I mean, how do you how do you reconcile this this push and pull in the church? That's a great question, Trenton. Thank you. It seems to me that the first thing we have to do is talk about, you know, this, um, you have to give definitions. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean unity really mean for us? And I think one of the misnomers is that unity equals sameness, mm -hmm. that we all have to be the same to be unified. And the answer is no. In fact, over and over in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about unity in the church and then names in the next breath the different gifts that people possess. So we don't all have the same gifts, mm -hmm. but we can be unified together as the body of Christ. Um, so I think there's great unity in diversity. So it's possible for us to disagree, but we can stay together, remain together in relationship. Uh, the other phrase that comes to mind uh, is attributed to St. Augustine. Augustine said, in essentials, unity. 
in non-essentials, liberty, in all other things, charity. Mm-hmm. That's a great quote, but obviously the question that it begs is, what are the essentials? And that's where United Methodists now and uh, other denominations around the world are asking, what is essential? Mm-hmm. And that's the debate, the debate that we have mm-hmm. to have. Um, one of my good friends who uh, teaches with me, taught with me at Columbia Seminary, um, she takes uh, the abolitionist phrase um, that the arc of history is long, but it mm-hmm. bends towards justice. She takes it and modifies it. She's an Old Testament scholar. Christine Yoder is brilliant. And she says the arc of history is long, but it bends toward inclusion. She believes that as she, even as an Old Testament scholar, has looked from the ancient of days into the church today, that the church is always gathering more and more persons to her. And I think, I think she's on that. And if that's an essential, mm-hmm. then the welcoming of persons is essential for us all. That's one of the questions that we have to raise. Does mm-hmm. it help in the conversation about unity? It does. I think that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting point. So for you, what's your essential? Mm. Golly, that's a great question. Uh, so I would say, I, I, I've thought about this because at one point I was saying, you know, what would, what would I say? That's it. I, I can't stay. One of them that I could not stay is if the church somehow did a 180 and said, we do not believe women should be leaders in the church. Mm-hmm. Then I would say, I, I can't do that. I've got to walk away. Um, if the church did a 180 and said, I don't believe that um, persons who are not white, um, that would exclude me, of course, as an Asian American. But so, yeah, they're mm-hmm. essentials. If the church said that we believe that uh, each one getting whatever they can for themselves, even at the expense of others, that that would make me leave. Mm-hmm. I really do think, to take liberation theology language, that God has a preferential option for the poor. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus himself talked about three populations that are essential, that we have to care for, the orphan and the widow and the stranger. Mm-hmm. Um all of those would be poor. We have to care for the poor. Um, so I think those are essentials for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the full inclusion of people who they're created to be, that's essential. Damn straight. <laughs> or not, as it were. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Trenton. <laughs> oh, golly. Part of the question that our young adults have been engaging kind of throughout the series is finding our own language for what we believe and kind of finding, this is good language for us, finding our essentials um, and, and trying to find um, the words, but also the courage to, to put that together. Um, so we asked Tom this, um, and we will ask you, if you had to be part of composing a confession for this place and time, what would you want to make sure is included? Mm, wow. Wow. So one of, one of my uh, former students who's now serving at church, for pastors to be ordained, they have to put together their faith statement and bring that to a governing body, a committee of people, because we're Presbyterians, <laughs> uh, and they have to read it and approve it. And the first line in her faith statement, which I think is beautiful, uh, reads, God is a mystery. And the tragedy is that she brought that to her committee of well-meaning people, 
And they rejected that line because they said, God is not a mystery. You have to know God. And they criticized her and said, after three years of seminary study and graduate school, the best you can do is God is a mystery. That's how you're going to start. Now, she didn't end there. She said God is a mystery. But then she did talk about what she believes to be true, about the nature of God, about the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of the Holy Spirit, the reason the church exists. But they were so thrown by that first line. I would say an essential in a confession for me is to remind ourselves that we are not God. And no matter what we try say and think about the nature of God and God's activity in the world, God is always God and we are not. So there has to be some openness and some possibilities that say this may be a statement about the essentials, but in all humility, we realize that we can't see what God sees. That would be a good start for me. So friends, keep tuning in, and if you want to be more an active part of this conversation, we would love for you to join us IRL. Can you say that? Is that a lame thing to say? It's totally I mean, a lame it's thing to 2019, say. 1998. <laughs> We'd love for you to join us in real life. So come uh, any Thursday, 7 o'clock. We're going to be talking about the confessions a little while longer. And uh, we would love to have you here at Village Church. You can find all of that info at villagepresya.org. And subscribe to these Millennial Ministry podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. You can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. We will see you soon.